Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already attached to it. AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. After years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end of the And the 2015 Carol Award for a debut novel presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay? This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. You may remember way back in the first app, I told you about a national writing conference I went to shortly after I'd signed my first literary contract with a major publisher, and how I got a little cagey when one of the presenters described exactly my situation as the worst thing that can ever happen to an author, even while it seemed like one of the best things that had ever happened to me. Fast forward two years, I'm back at the same conference, only this time I actually attend the gala on the last night, this hundred-dollar-a-plate soiree where they present the Carol Award, which is one of like a dozen major Christian fiction awards. My novel, Playing Saint, is a finalist with two other books in the debut novel category. I'm trying to play it cool, but I'm nervous. I've gotten all dressed up and posted some ha-ha selfies of me practicing my who-me winner's face and my aw, you deserve to win loser face. But the thing is, I've actually practiced them unironically as well and, of course, memorized a little speech that I'll only get to deliver if my book is the one that wins. Also, I'm sitting way up front with a few other authors from the same publisher and a number of bigwigs from the fiction division, including the head of the division, who's right next to me, while I try to at least partially enjoy this overcooked $100 prime rib, despite my stomach clenching like a fist from the anxiety of what's about to unfold. Back in Michigan, my family is watching all this go down on live video stream, And, of course, my category is way at the end, so I have to feign interest in a bunch of other awards and categories. Along the way, a friend of mine takes home the award for the mystery suspense category, which she totally deserves, but my mind never strays far from the moment of truth, fast approaching. When I don't win, I feel myself involuntarily slump at the shoulders while trying to sincerely clap for the winner, Very thankful that, unlike on actual award shows, there's no split-screen shot of all the nominees up on the Jumbotron. That's when I feel the head of the division sort of rubbing my back sympathetically and see her out of the corner of my eye looking at me the way Commissioner Gordon looked at Bruce Wayne after his parents were shot, wearing one of those I'm-so-sorry smiles you give someone who just got really bad news. What's weird, though, is that before dinner, as we waited for the whole gala to start and throughout, I asked some sort of subtle questions about when their pub board might look at my next couple book proposals, which are still in their possession at the time. And her answers are all southern cliches and squinty smiles, which look to me like the sort of I'm-so-sorry smiles you give someone who just got really bad news. I'm not suggesting she knew beforehand which book would win the award. I'm saying that, in retrospect, 
While consoling me about that blow I'd just received, she must have already known about the next one, which she would help deliver. And when I had that epiphany, it was like when Jesse Pinkman realized how he'd been played with the rice and cigarette and everything else, and he sprung to his feet full of quasi-righteous rage, like, like I'd been wronged. Like, if she knew, she should have told me, so I could spend the conference networking with other acquisitions editors and that sort of thing. And, and I thought, how phony to comfort me after losing an award when she was about to yoink my whole membership. But... After the self-pity and little internal tantrum subside, I realize, what else could she do? The one thing was a business decision, whenever it was made, even if it was wrapped up with some personal stuff, whereas choosing to comfort someone in a tough moment is a human compassion type decision, so there's no duplicity or hypocrisy on her part. There was some hypocrisy on mine, however. On my other podcast, I had played off the award dinner both before and after it happened. Like, sure, I'd love to win, but I know these things are just stupid. And I do, but I really wanted it. And in the weeks and months following, as the lists come out and I see other awards I didn't even get nominated for, I start to think, hey, my book's as good as that one. It's way better than that one. I got four and a half stars in that journal. They only got four. It's toxic, as I start to wonder if I was even considered for some of these. And if not, why not? Because some awards your editor submits your book for, some the agent, and some they just choose them themselves. But here's the thing about that particular award, the one at the gala. You have to nominate yourself for it. Meaning you pay a fee and send in a bunch of copies of your book, which feels kind of pathetic, especially because I know why I want this so very bad. What I really want, what I really want is to be able to add the words award-winning to my bio. Actually, I want to move the words award-winning from before preacher and Bible teacher to immediately before author. Yeah, that's my thing. My hypocrisy. Oh, and don't think I've missed the irony that the book that was in the running for that award was about a guy who rises quickly to success and finds it empty only to ultimately find peace by giving up his platform and his self-seeking and even his worldly notion of what success looks like and come down from it all. All told, my two traditionally published books were shortlist or finalist for three different awards, and I didn't win any of them. And when I was in my non-writing, introspective, poor me funk there for a while, I remember thinking, that's like a metaphor for this whole experience. Now I see how entitled and just annoying that kind of thinking was. After all, I made it further than 99% of aspiring authors ever get, and I'm still in my 30s, which is awesome. But it leaves me with the question percolating in my mind, where do I go from here? From here, where I'm, I'm kind of stuck and all angsty and a little whiny. And the answer became clear to me. First and foremost, away from this place. Who knew what when? Who told me what when? Who won what awards back then? What could have been? Crap, I'm rhyming now. But you get me. These things can hold you hostage, and that is tragic. And so the answer to that question, where do I go from here, is... The only way that makes any sense. Forward. Previously on Clinch. What about you, Trenton? Do you have a girlfriend? Before he could answer, Jason said, 
No girlfriend, but my boy has a stalker. Her name's Judith, and she loves him. I heard Zoe spent a few years traveling the world with her father. That's why she's still in high school. One year traveling, not four. But I thought you said your dad was a police officer. He's actually both, Trenton answered. Kind of in process of transitioning from cop to pastor. Part of him wanted to call Zoe right now, but it was probably way too soon. Didn't matter anyway, since he had given her his phone number and she had not offered hers in exchange. Yeah, the guys call John and I Tango and Cash from that movie, but civilians can call me Officer Terrell, and you are a civilian. Trenton felt a pang in his gut. He didn't know how, but he was sure. Judith had already found out about Zoe. Let me see if I understand you here, Trent said. You're planning to dress up in a costume and fight crime as a hero in Clinch Rock. That's insane, Judith. She smiled. I know. See you at church tomorrow. She gathered her things and disappeared out the door, leaving Trenton with the bill and a whole pile of questions. Clinch, a novel, chapter four. Quote, You can sleep when you're dead. Remember how Jesus flipped out on his disciples when he caught them sawing logs? A life of extreme faith is not about rest. It's about action. From Insane Faith, Superhero Edition, by Stephen Branding, page 51. Adam Marsh sat at his desk, trying to block out the knowledge that it would only be his desk for 57 more days. He was also trying not to keep track of how many days. He pushed the heels of his hands into his eye sockets and rubbed. What was he on, three and a half hours sleep? The sight of his Greek textbook at the corner of his desk reminded him that tonight would be another late one. Afternoon, Chief Marsh. Rich Barton walked in the door, in uniform. Chief Barton? When he created the position of interim co-chief and promoted Barton, he had insisted that everyone in the department immediately begin referring to him as chief. After all, best to get used to it now. The funny thing was, Adam was still not used to it himself and was increasingly sure he never would be. Sorry we have to do this on a Sunday, Rich said. I know you're probably beat. No problem at all, he answered, knowing this would actually cause all sorts of problems. He'd bowed out of Sunday lunch with a very influential parishioner to be here. Lunch plans that were meant to smooth over an earlier gaffe. Oh well, crime knew no Sabbath. At least not lately. Probably no point in driving, Barton said. Nah, and I could use the exercise. They went out the back, locking up behind them, and set off down the street. How are Tango and Cash fitting in? Adam asked. Pretty good. They're still getting used to the pace around here. I mean, Rochester Hills isn't exactly 8 Mile, but at least there was actual crime. I've almost been thankful for these incidents lately. I mean, not really, but it's helping ease the new guys into life in Clinch Rock. He was silent for a moment, huffing a little as he walked. How do you think they're fitting in? It'll take some time. They're the only officers this town has ever known who weren't born and raised here. Look, Chief, I hope I didn't overstep by no way. It's as much your department as it is mine, maybe more so. If you think they're the right men, then I'm sure they are. The two chiefs arrived at the old town hall, an impressive two-story wood structure. They walked up the steps, between the tall columns and in the front door, where they were met by a nervous older man in a bow tie. Chief Marsh, he said. Oh, thank heavens. I didn't touch anything. Wanted to preserve the integrity of the crime scene. Appreciated, Gil. Rich, you know Gil Kraus, city treasurer. Yeah, we played trombone together in marching band. Gil led the policemen down a narrow hallway into the main meeting room. I stopped by today to pick up some paperwork and found it this way. It's an historic building. I just can't believe anyone would... He trailed off. There, scrawled on the far wall in green spray paint, were the words, CRHS Rules. Kids, Barton grumbled. Clinch Rock High School. 
He turned to Adam. Do you realize our sons were classmates with criminals? That's not even the worst of it, Gil said, dabbing sweat from his brow with an enormous handkerchief. Follow me. The three of them entered an office. Sitting in the center of the floor was a massive old safe. They moved it from the closet in the corner, Gil offered. Yeah, we can see that, Barton said. The closet door, ripped from the frame, had been discarded against the wall, and the hardwood floor had been scraped and scuffed along the entire path the safe had taken. They tried to open it, Adam asked. Barton ran his fingers along the seam of the door. Not with a blowtorch, I don't think. Rich, fingerprints, Adam said. Oh, right. Sorry. Anyway, these old safes are indestructible, so who knows what they did. They probably didn't think it through, just gave up when they couldn't pry it open. Kids these days. No stick to You really think kids dragged this thing seven feet? I guarantee it weighs more than a thousand pounds. Barton nodded. You get four guys my Danny's size, they could move it. You should see the workouts Coach Fisher puts them through. I don't know, Adam said, following the trail back to the safe's original resting place. He shined a light into the closet. Hey, hey Rich, look at this. A few of the floorboards are up. Subfloor, too. Huh. Probably just pulled up when they dislodged the thing. Who knows how long that safe's been in the closet? Wouldn't doubt a hundred years. Probably stuck. Adam shook his head. I don't think so. Think about it. Three break-ins, all of which have the floors at least partially pulled up. Seems like more than a coincidence. And the other two had holes in the walls. Any of that here? Barton asked. Not that I noticed, Gil said. Adam walked up to a large framed map of the town and carefully lifted it off the wall revealing a jagged eight-inch hole in the plaster. Looks like a sledgehammer again. He surveyed the floor around them. Only they must have cleaned up thoroughly. Checking the trash can, he added, he even brought the plaster with him when they left. Hmm, Barton said. Maybe I should give these kids a little more credit. Or maybe they're not kids. I don't understand, Zoe said. We're going to a skating rink, but we're not skating. Welcome to Clinch Rock, Trenton said. His mood had recovered 100% from the evening before. After a long night of watching his phone not ring, he had prayed Zoe would show up at church. After all, she knew his father was the pastor, and she seemed to be what they used to call pious. She wasn't there, though, and he'd slumped into his pew in the back, sour and moping. But then, to his great delight, and the equally great displeasure of the old woman sitting behind him, Zoe had called halfway through the service. Trent had ducked out to talk to her. She was free this afternoon, she said, and wondered if anything was going on and if they could get together. He now sat comfortably in the passenger seat of her Volvo. It couldn't have worked out more perfectly. Yes, Zoe, don't judge, Jason chided from the back seat. They got nachos and laser tag. Okay, it, it could have worked out a little more perfectly. Once inside, they settled into their usual table, back in the corner behind the snack bar. They ordered a variety of junk food. The place was busy for a Sunday afternoon, middle schoolers thick on the skating floor and several tribes of older teens congregating around different tables. Zoe took it all in with a sort of detached curiosity, as if she were observing some primitive South American village untouched by modern man. So there's one school in town, and everyone in the school hangs out here, she said. Yep, Jason said, except the stoners. They gather behind the building. Don't you have a coffee shop? Trenton shook his head, sadly. No, we had one for a minute. It was called the Daily News Cafe. Instead of an internet cafe, it was just like a bunch of different newspapers people could read while they drank their coffee. Only they were all like a week old. It pretty much bombed. Was that downtown? Zoe asked. Yeah, it's empty now. Zoe smiled. 
We'll have a coffee shop again before long. Trust me, you won't be able to find an empty storefront downtown. Hey, look who it is, Jason called, rising from his seat. Judith came in the door and made a beeline for their table. Jason ran to meet her. Judith, he shouted. Hey, I missed you. Buy me a milkshake. I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not. Do it. Seriously. How many Red Bulls did you have today? She asked. None. I found this new cheaper energy drink at the Gas and Sip. It's called Wattage. I had three. Oh, boy. Her eyes fell on Zoe. Who's this? Trenton cleared his throat. <clears throat> Judith, uh, this is Zoe Green. Her family just moved to Clinch Rock a couple months ago. Judith smiled. It's nice to meet you. We all met her at camp, Jason said, helpfully, then turned to Zoe. You know, speaking of camp, a friend of mine told me she saw your driver's license. And this is crazy, but she said you might be, uh, como se dice, 22 years old. Jason, Trenton began. It's fine, Zoe said. She saw my fake ID. I got it last year. I'm actually 19. But the thing with this ID, Jason persisted, was that it had your name on it. I mean, I don't have a fake ID or anything. He fixed his eyes on Trenton and then Judith. Because I don't get into trouble. But the way I understand these things, they usually have a fake name. Jason, why don't you drop it, buddy? Trenton said. No, it's, it's okay. Zoe pulled her wallet from her purse and carefully removed two ID cards. This is my real license. See? 19. And this is the fake. I don't know why I even got it. My friends in Vermont were all doing it, and I thought it might be fun. The phony ID looked almost identical to the real one, except that it bore the name Zoe Frobisher and listed an apartment in Montpelier as her address. Jason studied them silently for a minute. You guys think I should get one of these? He asked. No, they answered in unison. His attention span maxed out. Jason's eyes skipped around the perimeter of the skating rink. Oh man, everybody's here today. Judith, check it out. Your two best friends. He pointed to a middle-aged man talking with a tall, brawny, teenaged boy over by the pinball machines. Who are they? Zoe asked. That's Dan Barton, real gem, and the older guy's coach, Fisher. Kicked Judith off the wrestling team. He didn't kick me off. I quit. Not what I heard, Jason said. There's Scuttlebutt, Judith. Scuttlebutt. I quit, she repeated, more adamantly. He was putting me in exhibition rounds even though I won all my challenges just because I'm a woman. That's sexism. He's lucky I didn't file a complaint. I could have sued the school. Yeah, I don't like him either, Jason said, still gazing in the direction of the coach and the jock. He was our gym teacher freshman year. What was that thing he was always yelling? No excuses, no delays, Trenton recited. Right. A chubby bald dude always carping about excuses and delays. Guys like a top hat short of being that grumpy conductor from Thomas the Tank Engine. Judith laughed. Okay, now I really am buying you a milkshake. I don't know, Zoe said. He's handsome in a way. Maybe a passing resemblance to Bruce Willis. Judith snorted. Not young, handsome Bruce Willis, though. More like older, waxen Bruce Willis with the stubbled head and vacant, beady eyes. Zoe shrugged. I guess. She put her hand on Judith's. You know, I think it's really neat that you would go out for a sport that's so male-dominated. Good for you. Thanks. I was undefeated in my weight class. You know what my secret weapon was? I'm double-jointed. Watch this. She interlaced her fingers on the table in front of her and, without releasing them, brought her arms over her head and behind her back and then down to the table again. Wow, do that again! Dan Barton was towering over the table, leering. Shut up, Barton, Judith said. Such hostility. You know, the coach and I were just talking about... He suddenly noticed Zoe. Who have we here? You must be new. He held out his hand. Dan Barton, varsity wrestling. Varsity jerkwad. Trenton mumbled. What was that, Marsh? 
Nothing, Dan. Why don't you just move along? Maybe I don't feel like it. He turned his attention back to Zoe. So rude, am I right? You know, I used to be like that, too. I was actually a bit of a bully when I was younger. I'm not proud of it, but it's true. And Trent here used to always threaten me with his dad because he was the chief of police. He said if I didn't leave him alone, his dad would put me in jail. Funny thing, my dad's the chief of police now, too. And in not too long, Marsh, your dad's just going to be a civilian. Good thing I don't bully anymore because nothing would be stopping me from kicking your butt. He let his eyes meet Trenton's menacingly for a moment before his square-jawed smile returned. Zoe leaned forward and locked eyes with the wrestler. Let me ask you something, Dan. Do you think any of us is impressed by this show of false machismo? Because we're not. Don't speak too soon, doll. I'm an acquired taste. He straightened up, seemingly about to leave, but then added, Did the bag lady here tell you she used to be on the wrestling team? Coach had to kick her off because she couldn't control her temper. Hey, Judith, remember when you kept insisting that the sleeper hold was a real thing? That was hilarious. Coach Fisher's like, Judith, that's the WWE. It's phony wrestling. And you're like, no, it's real. <laughs> so funny. Coach still brings that up at practice. Don't forget to practice your sleeper hold, guys. It is real, Judith said. YouTube it. Right, because everything on YouTube's real. See you nerds later. Actually, I don't care if I see you three, he pointed at Zoe and said, I'll see you later, and lumbered off. Jason's face twisted up. I cannot believe your dad chose that meathead's father to replace him. My dad just recommended him. The town council gave him the job. Anyway, Rich Barton's okay. It's not his fault his son is such a tool. He looked at his watch. Guys, if we're going to make it to the soup kitchen, we need to leave in like 20 minutes. Last call for that milkshake. Jason groaned. I've already been to church once today. I bet God won't mind if I skip youth group. If you don't go to the service project, you can't go to the concert next week. Besides, Zoe's your ride, so you're kind of stuck with us. Fine. But I better not have to wash dishes. I've never washed a dish in my life. Do you think he's volunteering, or is he actually here for dinner? Jason was peering through the open door from the kitchen. He sat down a while ago and talked to someone for a little bit, but he hasn't eaten. Now he's just standing there, staring. Weird. An hour into their shift in the kitchen, Jason had still not broken his record of never washing a dish. Who do you keep talking about? Judith asked, pulling another large metal vat into the industrial sink. Ed, Jason said. He was one of our counselors at camp. You know him. He's always reading the paper at the counter of the Whitetail Diner Saturday mornings, clears his throat every two seconds, drives me nuts. Oh, Mr. Piper. Yeah, he's nice. Oh yeah, real sweetie, this guy. Trenton pulled up his rubber gloves, which were a size too big and kept slipping down his arms. He took another mostly empty tray of garlic bread from a fellow volunteer and brought it over to the sink. The dining area was less than half full, maybe 35 or 40 people, some of them kids, which really pulled at Trent's heart. And standing against the wall, surveying the operation, was Ed Piper. Trenton wondered if he should go say hi to him. He looked lonely standing there, wearing the same old flannel shirt and jeans he was always wearing, not eating, not talking, not doing anything, really. Jason was still rattling on. The guy brought chewing tobacco to church camp, tells you everything you need to know. That is a little low class. Zoe said, drying and stacking bowls, somehow both daintily and efficiently. Judith stopped washing. That's kind of a snobby thing to say. Oh, don't be so sensitive, Jason said. It was called Blue Wolf Tobacco. You should have seen the logo on the tin. It's not just a picture of a wolf. Oh, no. It's a picture of a t-shirt with a picture of a wolf on it. He laughed and pounded the counter. Whatever, Judith said. 
One of the adult volunteers poked her head into the kitchen and announced, I need two of you to start collecting the salt and pepper shakers and condiments and any dirty dishes off the tables in the dining room. Trenton and I will do it, Zoe said. Come on. She wheeled a metal cart through the door and over to the far end of the expansive room. A lot of the tables hadn't been used, so the work went quickly at first. Judith seems nice, she said, making perfect rows of each type of bottle on the cart. I can see why you're so close. Trent nodded. She's a really kind person. Did you two ever date? Trenton laughed, hoping he wasn't overselling it. No, it's platonic. Yeah, I can see why. What, what does that mean? Oh, nothing bad, just, you know, it makes sense that she was a wrestler. She's, she's built like one. Thighs and hips, you know, nothing bad. Trenton had no response. Even while insulting someone in such a petty way, Zoe seemed somehow grown up and sophisticated, like she was hobnobbing over the tennis nets at a country club, rather than gossiping about a classmate while collecting squeeze bottles of mustard. Trenton liked the way that felt. Like, his life was bigger than it really was, bigger than this town of 3,000 people. And it didn't hurt when she asked, Would you like to come over for dinner tomorrow night? My father is grilling lobster tails. They're amazing. Trenton knocked a row of salt shakers off the cart. Had he just gone from hopeless crush to boyfriend to meeting Zoe's parents in the course of two days? Yeah, he said. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. We eat at 6.30. You can come by about 6.15? It's a date, he said, and immediately regretted it. For sure, she said, smiling. And I'm sorry for what I said about Judith. That was small of me. She really does seem like a good person. I think I was just thrown by Jason's description of her. He made her sound completely crazy. Trenton had a vision of Judith in mask and cape swinging through the streets of Clinch Rock. Yeah, he said. You can't take anything Jason says at face value. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel, copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me via email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, the way God intended it. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you may want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 